0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society. And many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. Now, in today's session, in contrast to the more challenging subjects of the last two weeks, is going to take me back to my comfort zone. Namely, nerding out about plants and how bizarre and amazing they are. Now, I don't claim to be a plant expert, far from it. I'm more like a fanboy of a stadium band that has been around forever pumping out hits and that I've only just found out about recently, and then I act like I discovered them. Uh, I hope that those of you who have been growing and studying plants your whole lives will forgive me for that. But so today, a perfect example of a person who's been a lifelong aficionado of the plant kingdom is Scott Zona. Now, Scott holds a BS in horticulture and an MS in botany from the University of Florida. And then his PhD in botany is from Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden, which is now the California Botanic Garden, and Claremont Graduate University of California. He has explored plants in Florida, California, Mexico, Central America, the Caribbean, the Pacific Islands, Indonesia, Malaysia, New Guinea, and Madagascar. His interests are in the diversity and the natural history of tropical plants, especially palms, salvias, bryophytes, and has published over 170 articles on these topics in various magazines, book chapters, and scholarly journals. He's also the co-author of two books, the Encyclopedia of Cultivated Palms in the second edition, and the Palm Collection at the Jardín Botánico de Culiacán. His third book, A Gardener's Guide to Botany, will be out right now in December of 2002. Scott is also a member of the American Biological and Lichenological Society, Cactus and Succulent Society of America, International Association of Biologists, International Palm Society, North American Rock Garden Society, and the Royal Horticultural Society, and is a research collaborator with the Herbarium of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. All of this has made him way overqualified to write the new book, A Gardener's Guide to Botany, the biology behind the plants that you love, how they grow and what they need. Now in this interview, Scott and I really just spend the whole time talking about why plants are the coolest and why everyone should love them too. And this brings us through a world of plant physiology and biological processes nutrition, hydration, and soil health principles, and the incredible adaptability and senses that have evolved in the vegetative world to overcome all manner of stresses and challenges in different environments. Now, despite the fact that Scott reminds me a few times that his book is not about how to grow plants or to garden, I can't help but prod him for advice and insights about exactly these topics, since that's my own most vivid connection with plants. Now, all the same, there's something for every plant lover in this episode, and so I'll invite you to come along with us, and I'll hand things over to Scott Zona. Scott, welcome to the show. It's really a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm I'm really excited about this new book you've got out, but before we get into the details of what is covered in the content, could you tell us a little about where and how your love for the plant world began?
1: Well, I think uh, if I... Be honest i'd trace it back to when i was about six years old and my grandmother gave me a plant to grow and it to my amazement grew and and i was hooked uh so i've been growing plants you know just for pleasure ever since um my i did an undergraduate degree in horticulture but the emphasis was sort of like on large commercial scale horticulture you know growing Three acres of poinsettias under glass, and that didn't appeal to me as much as working in a botanical garden or working with a diverse number of plants, um, and I ended up then going, kind of going from horticulture into botany, and, and got my master's degree and, and PhD in botany, and have worked actually in botanical gardens and and as kind of a uh, you know curatorial role ever since. So that's kind of how my passion for plants got started.
0: And I'm curious how your understanding of the inner workings of plants has changed the way that you interact with them, and perhaps even the way that you view the world at large.
1: Mm, that's maybe a difficult question to answer. I, um, I think because I've always been interested in plants, and in fact, I'm I think I sometimes prefer the company of plants more than the company of people. Um, I think I, I've I've just always had that in me that interest in plants and 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 sometimes I forget that for many people. Plants are just sort of this backdrop that you know all the interesting things happen in front of plants, but but you know the, the plants are just sort of this green backdrop and um, so part of the reason of this wanting to do this book was to to kind of help people see that there's more to this green tapestry that surrounds us uh and and that it's this really rich and interesting world um so that's kind of was was my motivation uh and and that's come from you know i've had students in classes that tell me that you know boy before i took this class you know it was just this green wall there out there. And now I look at it and I start to see things in focus and, and I see plants for individual plants and that they're all different. Um so so that and that so that's sort of my motivation. As far as, you know, how it how it's affect me. I don't know. It's hard to answer because I've always been so interested in plants. I can't imagine not seeing plants.
0: Yeah, I I hear you. My own love of plants started only just a handful of years ago. I didn't grow up with it nearly as much, but it has really changed the way that I see the ecosystems that I interact with. And, you know, much like you said, rather than just seeing it as a backdrop of greenery, being able to see the differences in the species and know a little bit about what makes them grow, the conditions that they like, and it can really inform a larger ability to read a landscape or an ecosystem and understand how you might be able to interact with it in a, in a deeper level. And like you said, so you've got students that you introduce to this world all the time. What would you say are some of the fundamental processes and functions that you believe that we should all be aware of?
1: Well, I I think I've, I've kind of organized the book around five processes or functions that are common to all life forms so I, I talk about growth and metabolism so and kind of having room to grow uh, I talk about acquiring nutrition so in course in the case of plants that includes photosynthesis as well as gas exchange and uptake of nutrients and water uh, I talk about uh, defense against predators uh, whether you're an animal or a plant or a microbe, there's always something out there that wants to eat you. So, and plants have the disadvantage of not being able to run away. So um, defense is important. And then of course, all organisms have to reproduce, uh, whether that's sexual reproduction or asexual, um, depends. And then that new generation has to disperse. So, you know, getting getting the plants out from, from the mother plant is an important process. So those are kind of the three or five, excuse me, five processes that I, I wanted to, uh, to drill down on in the book.
0: And within, within each of these processes, which are the ones that you see people most connect with and, and get excited about when they're introduced for the first time?
1: I think, um, plant reproduction and and like pollination ecology, I think because it involves animals and animals that move and people seem to be totally enamored with, you know, animals that move. um, I think uh, pollination gets gets people hooked. uh, And reproduction gets people hooked, partly also because, you know, a lot of what we grow uh, is for flowers and fruits. So, you know, those are fundamental reproductive processes and that that gets people interested. I find seed dispersal fascinating and that's, you know, I've done research on seed dispersal and that to me is is uh, almost more interesting than pollination and often involves animals. So, you know, there's something for the animal lovers out there. Uh, but, um, and I yeah, I think people could be hooked on seed dispersal, but they don't, they probably don't know that it's an important process or they don't think about it. Uh, yeah, they think about growing um plants in their landscape that have berries that attract birds but they're not thinking they're thinking about attracting birds they're not thinking about why the plant has these colorful berries that have sugar in them you know and that that's to disperse the seeds really um I think defense is is can be very interesting especially for people that are interested in in the chemicals that plants make to defend themselves uh, as I said the plants can't run away so they either they have to defend themselves in place and they can do so with you know things like spines um, or they can do thing and do it with toxic chemicals uh, and plants are veritable chemical factories when it comes to toxic chemicals uh, so so those are those are the things that i think people are can get excited about i mean you know when it comes down to it uh i think there's probably a only a small fraction of the population is going to get really excited by you know the the Calvin cycle or, or you know things <laughs> like the, the details of photosynthesis. But there are those people that you know have made entire careers studying photosynthesis. More power to them. It's an incredibly complicated subject, uh, and I have only kind of a, a general understanding of it. But uh, yeah, there's there's I think there's. To me, there's something for everyone in the plant kingdom, you know, there's something interesting, whether you're interested in, 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 uh, you know, aspects of of history and certainly human history, lots of major things in human history have revolved around plants from, you know, the invention of agriculture to, uh, you know, Christopher Columbus setting sail in search of black pepper. So uh, there's lots lots to, to engage people, and I think those stories need to be told.
0: I completely agree, and that's also really in line with what I have seen my own students really engage with when I teach, especially plant propagation, and how you can do everything from root division to cuttings to grafting to layering to seed dispersal and germination. Uh, And I think it comes from an ability to then be able to interact in a practical way. A lot of people now are interested in gardening, growing their own fruit trees and food forests and even getting into more like restoration type activities to revive the health of the ecology where they live. And plants, of course, play an absolutely crucial role for that. And it also seems like I picked up on a little bit of frustration from you at the beginning there where you're like, well, yeah, you know. They often connect with the part that has to do with animals that move and an inherent fascination with that. And yet so many of the the senses and the abilities that we attribute almost solely to the animal kingdom are also present in vegetative life as well. They just don't quite look the same or they're enacted in a biological method that we don't relate to or we can't anthropomorphize. And it seems like a shame to, to not give attention to just the, the fascinating way that though plants, you know, for the most part, cannot move and, and get to different places, have adapted and evolved incredible mechanisms to defend themselves, to regrow, to sense the world around them and adapt accordingly without the ability to move around. And yeah, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the ones that, that we should be more aware of.
1: Yeah, you hit upon a lot of a lot of good points there. Uh, and I didn't mean to dismiss people that are interested in in pollination and pollination ecology. It's a fascinating subject. I'm interested in it too. Uh, and if it's the butterflies that get you into gardening and plants, then great, you know, if that's your entree into the botanical world. Wonderful. I, I I didn't mean to sound like I was being dismissive. <laughs> no, no, of that. I don't think we're gonna. Um, I don't
0: think we're gonna alienate anyone in the audience. Yeah. You're
1: good. Good. No. Yeah,
0: on both sides. Yeah. Um,
1: because yeah, I mean, I love it too. So, um, um, and and you know, you 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 mentioned that you know people are really into gardening this, these days, and and yeah, I think you know a lot of people became interested in gardening during the whole covid lockdown phase and people were at home and they uh you know had either the time on their hands or the desire to make their 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 surroundings more beautiful or more interesting or produce food as you say so yeah a lot of people came into gardening whether it's you know growing a plant on the windowsill or or you know growing outside in in a more traditional garden um a lot of people became interested in that and and there are a lot of people that are new to it Uh, and and you know part of the reason. um, that this book got going was because I was doing a lot of posts on social media and and uh, about plants and just kind of. plant factoids that sort of thing and people were were responding very positively to it and uh, and I kind of realized that there's 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 a lot of interest out there, especially uh, after the. The, the the lockdown and people were growing house plants and and gardening. Um, what are some of the, you? You mentioned what, what was your question was. What are some of the stories or some of the plants that that I should I want to talk about or? Um,
0: yeah, or these processes and these functions, the senses that we have, almost an analogous relationship to, but that look different in the vegetable. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Well, you know, like. Plant, as I said, plants have to defend themselves, uh, and with it, you know, if you're looking at a spiny cactus or a, a, a holly tree that has spiny leaves, thing, you know, you think, okay, that's that's obvious, that's defense. Um, but what about defense against microbes? Because microbes obviously are not going to be stopped by any number of spines. Uh, so, do plants have a way of responding to microbes attacks and and because you know obviously just we have our immune system that you know if it's functioning as it should um, takes care of the microbes that you know thousands of, of microbes that are, were coming in contact all the time uh, our immune system deals with that likewise plants have a way of dealing with it they don't have an immune system like we know they don't have white blood cells that go in and at attack invaders that sort of thing uh, but they do have chemical signals so that when an invasion a uh, microbe invasion is detected in one part of the plant say one leaf uh, that information is signaled to the rest of the leaf or the rest of the plant rather and the plant can upregulate its defensive compounds the the antimicrobial compounds that it makes in its tissues, uh, it can also signal to other plants around it to say, "Hey, there's you know there's there's this something's attacking, uh, get ready, it's around." Like for example, if there's an aphid attack, uh, you know, you never have just one aphid. One aphid quickly turns into thousands of aphids, and uh, plants seem to be able to warn their neighbors about aphid attacks and, and things like that uh, through through chemicals, through chemicals in the air. Uh, so I think, you know, this is stuff that maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago would have been science fiction, uh, but because of advances in, you know, molecular uh, genetics and, and advances in detection technology, uh, we're beginning to unravel these processes that have been going on obviously for millions of years, but uh, we just have not seen them until fairly recently.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating because as long as humans have been studying plants, there seem to be some fascinating breakthroughs in biological and uh, well, chemical communication methods within not only the, the air and the chemicals transported by things like pheromones, but also the chemical signals that can be read underground. And transported mm. through roots and fungal networks. I know that there's a lot yeah. of excitement about the idea of basically the the fungal internet underneath. Yes. The, the, Can you the talk a little wood, bit about how that works?
1: The Wood Wide Web, as the yeah. press likes to call it. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 amazing, and this is. Um, uh, you know in, in doing research for the book i was reading a lot of these scientific papers about about uh, the latest discoveries in mycorrhizae and these networks and it is astonishing it really is um the the level of interconnectedness is something that i don't think we recognized 20 30 years ago uh the and and then as you say the communication going on that that um there is evidence now, they have experimental evidence uh, that shows that that these chemicals uh, or these these uh, communication can can be transmitted through mycorrhizae to other plants that are connected into the mycorrhizal network. These were some experiments done with, oh gosh, no, I can't remember. Exa- I think they were with conifers and they were with mycorrhizae network and they were growing these conifers in adjacent uh, containers, and the containers had between them, uh, or the, the soil volumes had between them separated a, a, a membrane which was uh, uh, prevented the roots from growing through the membrane, but the fungal hyphae were allowed to grow through the membrane. It was, it was a way of, it was a very fine membrane. And of course, fungal hyphae are many, many, many times uh, thinner than, than roots. Uh, and, they, and this experimental work showed that there was communication when, when one, one plant was under attack or it was uh, damaged, I, I can't remember exactly the experiment, but it was it, one, one plant was, had injury and it was transmitting through, presumably, the mycorrhizae, and, these, and incidentally, these, there was no uh, uh, air contact between these two plants either, so it wasn't a, a, a chemical transmitted through the air. Uh, and this experiment uh, uh, did find evidence that uh, this uh, communication through the mycorrhizae and that the, the non-damaged plant was upregulating its defensive chemicals to prepare for damage that might be coming its way. So, yeah, it's, it's really amazing. Um, that there's some, just some tremendous work being done on mycorrhizae right now.
0: Indeed, and just to think that we're at the beginning of learning about these processes, and that there's still so much to discover is also fascinating and, and really hopeful, yeah, especially I, as we start to try and understand how we can interact with these types of processes and these other life forms in a beneficial way, this greater understanding hopefully will open more doors to that interaction
1: yeah, I think one of the th- one of the things that came out of all my reading and preparing for this book was that um there's so much beneficial life in the soil, microbial, fungal, whatever. Um, And that can be damaged by uh, obviously chemical pesticides or even just chemical fertilizers, you know, the, the concentrated pure form chemicals that we might apply as fertilizer can be damaging to this delicate community that lives underground and that basically, instead of feeding the plants, we should be feeding the soil, we should be enriching the soil with, you know, organic matter and things that, that can feed these microorganisms and encouraging all this, these underground organisms, because really only a small fraction are, are uh, cause, cause disease or damage to plants by far the most of it is either neutral or beneficial to plants and we should be encouraging all of that
0: yeah and it seems the best way to control the few things that can be pathogenic and cause damage is by having a robust and interconnected web of other life that can help that and improve the health and the immune response of the plants themselves
1: absolutely yeah yeah,
0: yeah. i mean that's where we're just finding the repeating pattern in every iteration and, and expansion of our understanding of ecological connections is, is you know, the tendency is to study things in exclusion and separate them as parts of the whole that they are an aspect of. And we have gained a huge amount of understanding of the minute and chemical responses of, of individual components But the more I've done research about the overall health and interactions within complex ecosystems, the patterns are the same. They just need to have strong, resilient connections and interrelationships with a large diversity of life forms that can fill niches within a whole uh, living structure. And that's really the key towards building resilience at at almost every level.
1: You've, You've hit upon it exactly that that that. You know uh biodiversity at every level uh is important because the more biodiverse an ecosystem is the more resilient it is to uh minor perturbations you know diseases that might come in or something like that and major perturbations like you know we're, we're thinking about climate change now um, but the more diverse the ecosystem is the more likely it is to be resilient in the face of these major changes You know, uh, back when I went to college, which was you know, like 100 years ago, um, soil fertility was understood as, you know, parts per million of this element or that element, you know, parts per million potassium or parts per million of nitrogen, whatever. And I think there's been a major shift, even even at the research level in universities. I hope that university soil science classes are, are taught differently today than they were back then, but um, that the, the realization that you can't just reduce it down to the parts per million of the different elements in the soil that you know the, the soil fertility is greater than just the sum of those parts, uh, because of the the organic life that's in soil
0: yeah. Yeah. And to say nothing of the life that is required to make those nutrients in whatever concentration available to the plants as well. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's not just an inert substrate in which you can grow things. It's dependent on all those connections with the diverse life forms.
1: Yeah.
0: And maybe that's a, a good segue into the other question I was wanting to explore, which is. What do you believe are some of the most misunderstood processes and functions that are holding back our understanding and our interactions with the vegetative world? And, you know, maybe it's not just things that are misunderstood, but also things that perhaps have been updated more recently that give us a more complete picture of how we might participate and interact with plants.
1: Well, I think, you know, what we've been talking about, the the appreciation now for for. The underground diversity, the micro, you know, the 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 plant microbiome. Uh, you you hear about microbiome. You know, the human microbiome has been in the news in the past few years, um, and I think we're just beginning to get a handle on plant microbiome, both the microbes and uh, organisms living on the surfaces of plants, which are important because they're 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 kind of maybe the first defense for an invading uh disease uh but also uh, the microbiome that lives within plants so between in between the cells and and, and you know just as we have a microbiome in our gut and, and in our uh in our bodies uh plants have a microbiome as well and that's only beginning to be understood it's really uh it's that's going to be probably years in in unraveling all of that the, you know, the ability to sequence DNA uh, has just been, you know, astonishing in revealing that there's all this foreign DNA in a plant sample that it's, you know, it's not actually the plant, it's, it's part of these, these uh, commensal organisms that are living inside or on plants, and uh, we're just just beginning to be able to a to even discover it with with DNA sequencing and then be realizing that these 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 creature these organisms are all functioning and they're they're doing something maybe beneficial for the plant mm. so that's that's probably the i think that's maybe the the hottest area of, of research and i think that's going to really change in the in the coming years our our understanding um i mean there's there's lots of things about plant biology that you would think we would have figured out years ago, that, you know, are still sort of revealing their secrets, you know, things like uh, the way water is transported in a plant. I mean, we have a model, but the that that it's water is being pulled up through evapotranspiration on the leaves. It's being pulled up through the vessels in the in the stem. Um, But the details of that are still kind of hazy and 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 not well worked out. photosynthesis uh you know it's incredibly complicated topic and now we're we're starting to realize that there's there's quantum aspects to these photosynthesis uh reactions uh and you know boy that's way above my pay grade and and, you know i i'm I, i i don't begin to understand you know quantum physics um but it just shows that there's, there's a lot we're learning. And uh, it's, it's, that's, to me, that's part of the joy of botany is that there's always something to learn and that we are learning more, the more we look, the more we learn, the more questions we ask and try to answer, the more questions open up in front of us. So, uh, and that to me is endlessly satisfying.
0: I think that's such a good perspective, too, because there is a perception that at this point, we've gotten the basics of most fields of science kind of sorted out, right? Uh, that we know the building blocks, at least among the general yeah, public.
1: Right? In general, yeah, yeah.
0: And yet there are some very simple processes that we don't have a grasp on yet. And we can't say, OK, that we understand this fully. There's still room for understanding and for exploration even at some of these fundamental levels that we've built a lot of studies on top of and you know that's both scary and fascinating depending on what part of that you're trying to use to to either do work or to further the investigation as well
1: yeah i think you know some people want want certainty they want they want guarantees they want absolutes and they want to know you know this is the way it is with plants and but you know finding that kind of certainty those kind of absolutes is almost impossible in biology i mean you know there's 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 always exceptions there's always things we don't quite understand um and i find that uncertainty thrilling i, I that's to yeah. me it's exciting that's where where things are happening um if i felt i knew everything that'd be kind of boring you know
0: <laughs> for sure for sure now when it comes to What we are able to do to improve plant nutrition, uh, going into kind of more practical things that people can learn from to interact with, let's say the plants in their garden or even in in a park or wherever they might come into contact with them otherwise. How particular is nutrition for various types of plants? Is it necessary to micromanage each individual variety? or uh, are there overarching principles that we can use to guide plant health and soil fertility management?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, you know, as I stressed early on in in the early chapter of this book, this book is not a book about how to grow plants. And I am not an expert in how to grow all plants. I, 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 you know, I have my garden, I grow some plants. And I'm reasonably successful in those, with those plants in, the, in my particular, uh, you know, growing zone here in the Carolinas, but uh, I, I would hesitate to try to make recommendations that would be all encompassing for all people and, you know, your listeners, wherever they might be. Um, I think, again, I, I think I've already said, you know, feeding the soil and keeping the soil healthy. Uh, will go a long way to keeping plants healthy i mean i think if you've if you have healthy soil uh, that's uh, reasonably fertile i don't think you need to micromanage every little plant and worry about you know applying a little bit more potassium here and a little bit more you know chelated iron there i I think uh, i think a good healthy soil the plants the plants can take care of themselves Um, but you know, I'm sure there are exceptions to that. <laughs> Just there are exceptions to everything in biology. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I I think micromanaging fertility is is that's 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 probably you could spend a lifetime trying to do that and still not succeed.
0: Yeah, and at a certain point, you get to the law of diminishing returns, right? Where you're
1: exactly playing yeah, at the yeah.
0: atomic and the chemical level of each plant, and you know you're not you're not going to get any any return on doing things at that small of a level. Um, but okay, so in the observation of the plants that you might be interacting with, what are some signs that you can look for that you may need to intervene or give them better conditions in order to to improve their health?
1: Well, if we're talking about fertility, about plant nutrition, then um, there is a difference which I mentioned in the book between, a nutrient deficiency and an insufficiency yep. a deficiency will generally result in some obvious diminished growth with with you know for example you know classic sign of of an iron deficiency is chlorosis uh in which is yellowing of the leaves with often with green veins but yellow between the veins and that's sort of a general sign that a lot of plants exhibit that that symptom um, and that's a sign of a true deficiency an insufficiently insufficiency in nutrients might mean the growth will be maybe a little slower maybe not quite as luxuriant but it will be perfectly healthy uh, and often in our gardens we have insufficiencies rather than deficiencies and insufficiencies can be Easily remedied if you feel that it's a problem. Now, like I say, the plants are growing fine; they look healthy. They may not be as growing as fast or luxuriantly as they could, but for some people, you don't you don't want things to grow too fast. If you've got a hedge, you don't want to be trimming it every year, so uh, or every every other month. So you don't want it to grow too fast. Um, so by by simply managing, uh, you know, applying maybe some some well rotted com, compost or common or something might take care of those insufficiencies just fine. Um, I think I've gotten I've wandered off from where your original question was. but uh, Oh, well, and then, and if we're talking about, say, light uh, as, as the condition. Uh, generally, plants re- respond pretty quickly if they're getting too much light. Uh, we get what's called photo bleaching in the leaves, or even uh, uh, overheating of the leaves. Like if you were to take a, a, a house plant, like a philodendron, and stick it out in full sun, uh, the centers of the leaf will, will will basically burn. They 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 will turn. They will it will kill the tissue there in the centers of the leaves. Uh, and and that's so that's a pretty obvious and, and dramatic symptom of too much light. When plants don't get enough light. Uh, they can either they can respond in a couple of ways, they can qu- just grow very slowly. Um, and that's maybe a insufficiency of light versus a deficiency of light, they might uh, they they tend to stretch toward the light we call that process edulation and. Uh, you may have seen plants that are growing in in a. Kind of a too dark room, they'll they'll kind of grow toward a window, and and the the stem becomes elongate between instead of being nice bushy plant, they'll have these elongate stems with just a few leaves uh, yeah, here and there. Lanky. Yeah, yeah, they get lanky exactly, and that's and and that's called etiolation, and that's because they're not getting enough light, um, and so um, and obviously the remedy for that is more light. Uh, so those are those are some of the. You know, you, I think I think uh, you know an experienced gardener is always looking at his or her plants and 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 you know making those evaluations on a on a day to day basis and um, and that's probably you know the best the best way to to prevent problems is to just keep an eye on your plants you know and if with the minute you start to see these problems remedy them and and that'll keep your plants healthy.
0: Well, one of the ways that is continually being explored, especially in the regenerative agriculture space that I find fascinating. And I really don't know exactly how this works physiologically. the idea of foliar feeding. And we were just talking about all the necessary aspects of of feeding soil so that they can gain their nutrition from the the substrate that they're growing in. But plants can actually also take up nutrients from their leaves themselves. Can you talk about how that works?
1: They can. The exact physiological processes, I am not well versed in at all, uh, but I do know that virtually all plants can take up at least some nutrients to some extent from their leaves now there are some plants that rely almost entirely on taking up nutrients through their leaves. Um, And I mentioned these in the book, these are litter trapping plants, these are plants uh, that. Uh, have, they often have kind of a funnel-shaped growth habit, a rosette of leaves that forms a funnel, and they trap falling leaves in that funnel and and make a little compost pile in the center of that plant. And as that compost uh, decays and releases nutrients, uh, those nutrients are taken up by the leaves of the plant. Some are also leached down into the root zone of the plant, so they can be taken up there as well. But virtually, like I say, virtually all plants can take up at least some nutrients uh, just directly through the through the leaves. It will uh, uh, ions, small mineral ions like 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 potassium or 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 phosphorus can move through the cuticle, which is that waxy layer that covers the leaves, um, and into the cells. Uh, Often, I know. Growers that are that are doing foliar feeding, this is in like in production, in greenhouse production, that sort of thing. Uh, they try to aim for the undersides of the leaves because the cuticle may be not as thick there, or may be interrupted by the stomata and the stomata, which are the little pores in the leaf for gas exchange. Uh, those are not uh, as strongly covered by cuticle, and therefore the nutrients can pass into the into the the cells there at the stomata um but yeah foliar feeding is goes on a lot it's, it's it's often used for the micronutrients these are the nutrients that plants need in, in relatively small amounts things like uh like copper or or boron or uh Manganese, magnesium, uh, molybdenum—even all of these uh, are used in very small amounts in plants, uh, and uh, because they, some of them are not readily available at regular pHs that we might be growing in, or so the regular acidity of the soil. Uh, by applying it to the foliage uh, in a form that the plants can take up. Uh, the these nutrients don't get bound up by the soil particles in, because of the pH of the soil. So you kind of bypass the whole soil and apply it directly to the plant, um, and that's that's maybe an, an expensive way of of applying those nutrients, uh, but it's also a, a, a very direct way of doing it.
0: Hmm. And when it comes to water, too, there are so many different thoughts and practices. You were just saying that you know even in science, the the way that plants move water in, in their internal mechanisms is not perfectly understood. What do you want to give as as an understanding or a, a look into how plants regulate their own moisture levels, how you can perhaps even train them to search for water deeper and not rely so much on, on surface watering?
1: Yeah, I think... Um... You know, you'll you'll see in, in gardening books uh, the recommendation that a good deep watering once in a while, if you're talking about irrigating a, your garden, is better than a daily brief watering where you're you're watering just the upper few centimeters of soil, uh, and and that may I think that's what you're getting at when you say training plants uh, because. Yeah, if you're putting most of the, the so- if most of the soil moisture is in that upper few centimeters, that's where the roots are going to go because that's where the water is. Uh, and then if you cut off that irrigation and that those few centimeters dry out, that's going to really stress the plant. Whereas if the plant has deeper roots and is putting a lot of its effort taking up water at deeper levels. That doesn't dry out as fast, obviously, um, because it's down insulated from the evaporation that's occurring at the upper surface of the soil. Uh, And that's probably, uh, plants can can withstand drought a little better if their roots are deeper than than they would if their roots were on the surface of the soil. Um, And plants also take up water through their leaves, just like we were mentioning, they take up nutrients. Uh, and uh, that's, I think, something that, we're, again, it's kind of a new thing we're beginning to appreciate that that all plants can take up water through their leaves. Now, it may not be a huge percentage of their overall water budget, uh, for some plants it's it's virtually all their water budget, like the air plants, the tulansies that people grow as houseplants. Those are, they take up virtually all their water through their leaves, but even a plant rooted in the soil, a tree or a shrub, um, that can take up water through its leaves as well and i think that's often why gardens look so refreshed after a rain shower it's not just the rain has gone down into the soil and the roots are taking it up and it's perking up the plants i think uh, the leaves are directly absorbing water and perking up and looking fresh and 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 very much uh, um, you know full of life uh, that way
0: Yeah, and I know growers too, especially who have delicate cultivars like lettuces, for example, in the heat of the summer, they'll do some misting or some sprinkler uh, irrigation in the middle of the day, which, you know, conventional wisdom says, no, you don't do that. The water gets too hot, it can actually damage the plants, but just to perk them up a little bit and give them that little bit that they need to get through a long, hot day can make a real difference.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And I've also got a friend who is in the Canary Islands and is experimenting a lot with wicking beds and actually delivering Mm -hmm. moisture from the base of the plant. And so they just train all of their roots to get their moisture down from from there. And he can actually regulate that with a simple float valve and so that they always have just enough, but that their roots are never actually sitting in the water itself.
1: Right. right. Yeah. There are lots of. uh, greenhouse uh, uh, techniques that involve you know flooding a a a basically these benches that are like trays they have a raised lip uh, flooding it and then taking the water away so that as you say plants are not sitting in water because most plants don't want to sit in water uh, but the plants are getting the the moisture they need um, that's taken up through through the the base of the of the pot um, there are others that, that have uh, a mat, a cap, um, what's called a capillary mat, that is like a, almost like a thick felt uh, that okay. absorbs, that will wick water from, a, from a, a reservoir somewhere in the greenhouse, and wick water through that and then to the base of the plant and, and through, up through the, the soil that way. So uh, yeah, there are various techniques for doing that in greenhouses.
0: And so, all the stuff that we've talked about so far is really simple and', and it's very accessible to just about anyone. but have you found areas of biology and plant care that are really necessary to develop a sort of deep and academic understanding of in order to be able to work with plants and you know interact in the natural world
1: no i I mean I don't think i, I you know you can you can grow a philodendron on your windowsill and and maybe take cuttings from it and root them and have up more plants. You could do that without any understanding of, you know, what's what photosynthesis is all about or or what uh, how roots are initiated. Um, so you don't need that understanding to to enjoy that hobby level of growing plants on a windowsill. However, if you're in if you're interested in plants and if you're curious about plants, um, then, you know, the whole idea behind my book is to give you that deeper knowledge of what plants are doing, um, how they do what they do, which is, you know, even, you know, I've been studying plants for for ages and and still it fascinates me and amazes me that plants do what they do. Um, so, so, you know, you don't need an academic degree to, to do this, but uh, if you're curious about plants and want to know more about them. Uh, I think it deepens your appreciation of of your hobby of growing plants. So, uh, yeah, I I I think anyone who's interested in growing plants um, could could you know would want to learn more about plants.
0: Oh, I would really benefit from understanding the physiology and the botany that is described in your book. Now, you know, we talk about plants as if they were some sort of mass uh, that are fairly similar but my god there is so much variety within this kingdom if not more than than in the animal kingdom and yet you know because there are quite a lot of constants like um, you know being rooted in the ground and photosynthesizing for the most part there even though there is you know huge variety of, of colors even more so than in animals when it comes to flowers and certain parts of the plant, we still kind of see them, like you said, in this background as a green mass. But there are so many vegetative life forms that kind of prove the rule by being these wild outliers in their behavior and, and in some of their aspects. What are some of the ones that I think more, that you think more people should know about? Because oh, Because of some gosh. of the extreme behaviors <laughs> or characteristics that they possess?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, oh gosh, there's so many. We could talk for hours just about this topic. Um, I love seeing how plants have adapted to really dry areas so deserts. I, I went to school out in Southern California and, and fell in love with the Sonora Desert. Um, the, the seeing how plants can adapt to to drought, to storing water, storing water underground burying themselves, I I have a picture of contractile roots which pull the basically pull the plant or maybe the bulb deeper underground uh, and keeping that bulb down where where there's obviously more moisture and protection from the heat and the in the drought on the surface of the soil. seeing how uh, even in deserts we see epiphytic plants, these are plants that grow on other plants they're not parasites they're just perched up there on other plants. So uh, mm-hmm. some of the common air plants that we grow as house plants are good examples of epiphytes. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've seen epiphytic bromeliads growing on big columnar cacti. So, you know, picture a, a big columnar cacti, like a saguaro or something like that. Um, but with air plants growing on it, I mean, it's just, it blows my mind. Seeing oh, um, I haven't seen that. Seeing uh, i remember being in the tehuacan desert in 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 uh, southern mexico and seeing the rosettes of the salaginella that's sold as kind of a novelty plant as a resurrection plant it sort of curls up and looks like a uh, uh looks like kind of a, like a sea anemone all curled up and then you put it in the water and it opens up and it looks has this ferny foliage mm-hmm. and seeing those growing in the wild they're just on the ground in the desert you know it's just just and Salaginella, which we normally think of as a plant, as a very delicate plant, the plant that grows in ever moist areas in the shade and, you know, kind of like a fern. It's a fern relative. Um, but here it was growing in a desert in and, and, you know, responding to desert moisture, probably a lot to fog as as much as anything, oh, wow. as, as much as to rainfall. And it just, uh, just amazes me. Uh, and then we could talk about, you know, you said plants have chlorophyll. Well, not all plants have chlorophyll, as you know. Yeah. Uh, there are plants that are uh, endoparasitic plants. These are plants that live entirely inside other plants. And the only time we ever know they're there is they burst forth to bloom. Uh, if you ever remember the, the, uh, the film Alien from, I don't know how many years ago that was, but, you know, the alien bursts out of the guy's chest that's exactly how these plants are behaving. They're behaving just like aliens living inside other plants, not, apparently not, not adversely affecting these plants in any way that you know, that we can notice. But then they suddenly burst forth with a flower uh, uh, to do the reproduction because you know sexual reproduction demands that they've got to have a flower and, and uh, you can't do that inside another plant. Uh, so those are very cool. Uh, then we have what are called micro hetero, micro heterotrophic plants. These are plants that, uh, in old textbooks, we would have called them saprophytic plants. They don't have chlorophyll, so they're completely white, or sometimes they're colorful. They're red or yellow or something, but they're not green. They don't have chlorophyll. Uh, and they grow in the soil down, typically in very shady areas. Um, and uh, they... You know, a, a good example in eastern North America would be the Indian pipes, uh, monotropa, uh, genus monotropa, uh, and it turns out they're getting their nutrition from a fungus, from, and the, the fungus is getting its nutrition as a mycorrhizal fungus from, say, a tree or a shrub growing nearby. What we don't know is if we, we don't know, is the mycoheterotroph parasitizing the, that relationship with the, fung, the, the mycorrhizae fungus and, and the tree? Is it giving anything back or is it just taking? Uh, so is it a parasite or is, it, uh, is this sort of a, a mutualism of some sort of, uh, where the mycoheterotroph is contributing something to the mycorrhizae you know, and getting something in exchange for its nutrients? Uh, we don't know um so that's just amazing there are there is one case of a parasitic conifer which just blows me away it's, it's a uh, this is a parasitic parasit, it's called parasitaxis is the genus and it's found only in New Caledonia New Caledonia is famous for weird plants and this is one of the weirdest uh and it it lives it's in the the family podocarpaceae the podocarpus family and it's a parasite on other podocarpus, other members of the same family. Um, and it has weird physiology. It's, it's just been studied in relatively recent years uh, that it's sort of halfway between a mistletoe, which traditional mistletoes are, uh, they, they're green, so they're photosynthetic, but they get their water from their host, their water and minerals. So this parasitic, uh, parasitic, parasitic gymnosperm conifer is getting its water sort of like a mistletoe, but then it seems to be getting nutrients more like a mycoheterotroph with fungi involved. So it's it's that's totally good. totally in its own league out there, um, and that just amazes me. Um, I, I've talked about earlier about these litter trapping plants. This is, to me, fascinating. In fact, I wrote a paper about it with uh, with a colleague a few years ago about how plants are capturing litter before it hits the ground, because once it hits the ground, then uh, the nutrients that are released are going to be taken up by the tree roots, which can be pretty extensive in in in, in a forest. Uh, if you've ever tried to Grow plants under in a forest setting, uh, you know, there's a lot of roots down in the soil. You start digging, trying trying to plant something, there's a lot of roots. There's a lot of competition from for moisture and nutrients in the soil. So by uh trapping leaf litter uh before it hits the soil, before it gets to the ground, these plants have an advantage. And these are not just epiphytic plants. I talked about um or maybe I didn't talk about, it. I can not mention some of the epiphytic ferns like staghorn ferns, this is the genus Platycerium, uh, they trap litter, they have kind of specialized leaves that trap litter behind them, uh, and they're epiphytic. Uh, the, epiphy- the common, its well, it's, it's a common houseplant called bird's nest fern, and it's one that has this rosette funnel shaped growth habit, and it grows as an epiphyte in the tropics, and it catches leaf litter. Uh, there's even a carnivorous plant that has gone, veg- has become vegetarian. Uh, this is in the genus Nepenthes. These are the, the Asian pitcher plants. And most of them uh, are, have these amazing pitchers on, their, on the tips of their leaves that trap insects in them. Uh, but this particular species, this is Nepenthes ampullaria, grows on the ground, and it has these open pitchers and, that are not protected with a lid like most uh, of the carnivorous ones are, uh, so that anything can fall into it, and anything being leaf litter. And studies have shown that it's getting a big chunk of its nutrition from leaf litter, not from insects. It, it traps a few insects, but really uh, most of its nutrition is coming from leaf litter.
0: And it, it's, it's breaking it down with its own fluids, or it's actually decomposing through 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 conventional methods within the vessel
1: i suspect it's the mixture of both so wow. yeah there's there's obviously bacteria and whatnot that's that's breaking down the the leaf litter that's trapped mm-hmm. in the pitcher, uh but the pitcher is also releasing enzymes uh to help break down and and then take up those nutrients
0: that's so cool
1: yeah plants are so cool.
0: about like how i started to get into this myself when i first saw a proper rainforest in, in the North Island of New Zealand, and just that riot of life and so many different forms of plants all in one area. And then as I started to understand a little bit more about ecology and, and learn about plants through friends of mine when I was farming in Guatemala, another ecosystem where we were up in essentially like a cloud forest at the oh, higher wow. altitudes in the, in yeah. the tropical areas yeah. and seeing, this is actually really the first time I'd seen many air plants with no root systems and and just dripping from the foliage up in the canopy there. And I mean, that's really when I started to to research more about it and to build an understanding. And then, you know, just the way that life finds a way and adapts to every possible little niche when there's competition, but also collaborative effects, you know, how maybe they're not quite parasitic, but there is some sort of symbiotic relationship that is not only cultivated with other plants around it, but within the pollinators and even sometimes the predators, uh, in, in ways that are just like, I just like—I could never imagine it if you hadn't seen it.
1: Yeah, there, um, there is. In fact, there's a plant. Um, if I can come up with the name off the top of my head here, um, nope, it's not coming to me. Uh, it's a—it's a carnivorous plant uh, related to Drosera. In fact, is it drosophyllum? That might be the genus. Anyways, it it has sticky leaves, and it uh, it it will insects will be stuck to the leaves, but it's getting nutrients not from directly from these insects, but from a a uh, a true bug, a hemipteran that lives with the plant. It, do, it doesn't get stuck to the plant. It's I think it's big enough so that it doesn't get stuck. But it then comes and eats sucks the, the 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 fluids out of the trapped insects and then it's living on the plant it's pooping and the plant is absorbing the nutrients from the poop of the predator oh it's, it's uh getting feeding on the insects stuck on the plant so it's 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 crazy it's just that so, wild. Um, so wild yeah there's there's oh. so much going on and and you know there's so much to learn and so much to It really haven't we haven't even observed a lot of this stuff. You know, you talk about going to rainforest. Well, you know, it's really hard to observe, especially over a period of time, you know, long periods of time, what's going on, you know, anything over like 10 feet above the ground. And rainforest trees can be up there many, many, many meters above ground. Uh, And there have been some some places where uh, ecologists have built uh observe, observation decks up there in the rainforest there was even a french team of ecologists that 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 uh, built an inflatable raft that would sit on top of the canopy in the rainforest oh, I saw that. yeah, I was yeah. That experience. so just so they could sit and observe things and they were finding things that you know that that had never been seen before because there's all this stuff going on but it's you know 30 meters up there and and you know, it's hard for us to observe. We're not very good at climbing trees without some help. Um, so yeah, there's lots to observe, lots to learn, uh, and just even kind of what might be written off by some people as just just natural history observations. Those are so important because those natural history observations are what lead us then to uh, formulating hypotheses which lead to uh, greater theories of what's going on, ecological theories. So so it all starts with, to me, it starts with natural history observation. So we we need it. And uh, it's hard to do in some places like tropical rainforest.
0: Yeah, yeah. And all of this kind of brings back to me the importance of treading lightly on the places where we live, because there are so many things that we don't know yet, so many things that we're not even aware that our impacts are affecting and goodness knows how these things can exacerbate over a long yeah. periods of time. And yeah, I mean, people are getting a sense of the necessity to be aware of all of these other life forms that we often completely ignore or take for granted, and and tread lightly.
1: Yeah, I you know the the, the whole issue of conservation is so important. And yeah, it's easy you know it's easy to have. Uh, you know a giant panda or something is is you know a, a very charismatic species and people are rightfully want to conserve that but there's so many species that are endangered by uh, sadly by our own activities that may not be as charismatic as a as a as a giant panda but have a place in the ecosystem and if i can say it deserve to be there just you know, as much as the giant panda does so uh, and and we're losing things, even before we know that they exist, you know, we're losing things that have not even been taxonomically named. Um, So that's and that's that's just horrifying to me and and it makes me very, very sad.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, look, let's turn that around. Let's put a nice (laughs) spin on this before we wrap up. Scott, can you tell our listeners who hopefully are fascinated as I am about the world that can open up when you go into exploring vegetative life, where they should perhaps look for an entrance point, and also how they can get the, uh, your book as as one of those tools for going deeper.
1: Well, I think the entrance entrance point is any kind of gardening you want to do, whether it's whether you're growing, you know. 30 acres of of soybeans or you're you growing a cactus on your windowsill uh any kind of growing any kind of interaction with plants is the entrance point is is that's your entree into the world of plants uh and um if you're curious about it if if you want to know more about plants uh, my book is due out december 6th uh there was a delay for a while but i apparently that delay has been sorted out so uh, all the booksellers now online and, and both uh, brick and mortar booksellers are saying December sixth is the date that will be available. It's called A Gardener's Guide to Botany, and uh, it's not a book about how to grow plants, as I've stressed. It's a book about botany. It's a book yeah. about, that I hope is accessible whether or not you... You know, had biology recently in school, or maybe never had a biology class. I think this was. I, I tried to make this book accessible. Um, I tried really hard to make it attractive. So I've got lots of pictures. Uh, a, 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 a local artist, Preston Montague, did the did some diagrams, some illustrations for me, um, that are really beautiful uh, as well as informative. So uh, I hope. Uh, people will read it and uh, it will um, give them more understanding of plants and maybe even want them to dig deeper because obviously i can't cover everything in one book but uh it's it's a a way of igniting curiosity i hope that will encourage people to learn more about plants to grow more plants to take care of the plants that are out there um you know i i want I, i i i'm writing this with gardeners in mind With people that that have a garden or growing plants on a windowsill or in a garden but i'm hoping that their interest in plants will expand out to the natural world as well not just the cultivated world of plants Mm -hmm. Uh, and and uh, that they'll pay attention to plants in nature just as they do pay attention to the plants in their garden
0: I love that. What a great message. And just in time for Christmas gift for that plant nerd in your life, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I joke with my family. Everybody's getting this for their Christmas present. My Christmas shopping is done.
0: <laughs> well done. Well done. Well, Scott is an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I learned a lot of new stuff and it's just such a joy to connect with others who, who love the plant world as much as I do, and and always have new things to share and to exchange uh, let's look forward to maybe doing a follow-up sometime and uh, great job on this book
1: thank you so much i've really enjoyed it too oliver and and uh, yeah i just i'm really pleased to to have this opportunity to talk about plants because i love nothing more than talking about
0: plants <laughs> yeah well, you came to the right place all, all right, right. Seth, again thanks for making time we'll be in touch you're soon.
1: most most welcome bye-bye
0: Thanks once again to Scott. I'll be posting the links to his book on the show notes for this episode, where you can also find all the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. If you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show into the future, or to just get some feedback on your own projects and have some questions answered, it's all happening there. So come join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on the website or through our link tree on Instagram. Well, that's our session for this week. Be sure to subscribe to this show and leave a review wherever you stream your podcast from so you never miss an episode. And until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future and I'll be right by your side along the way.